Wow, okay, so we're in week four or five of a series on chapter five of Matthew. Tonight we're finishing chapter five. Yeah, we've walked, we've crawled through it. We've walked through it so carefully, we've all but just read the letters out loud individually, okay? So tonight, let me review a little bit of what we did last week and the week before, just just to remind you where we've been. We struggled a couple of weeks ago with what was Jesus saying when he's saying that he didn't come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. And then he led us through different parts of chapter 5. He started talking about, you've heard it said, now I say to you. Kind of going back and forth. Last week, we talked about murder, adultery, and divorce. And if you remember his standard that he was saying the now I say to you, or but I say to you, you have for murder, he was setting a higher standard. But I tell you that anyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment. Last week we spent a little bit of time just in reflection, writing down maybe people that you've thought about who might be angry with you, who you're angry with, and I'm going to come back to that in a second. On the subject of adultery, but I tell you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. We talked about the standard. Used to be, just don't commit adultery. But Jesus' standard is so much higher. Lust is adultery. On divorce, I tell you that anyone who divorces his wife, except for marital unfaithfulness, causes her to become an adulteress. And we started dealing with the first of several teachings on divorce that he's going to come back to. So I'm going to leave some of those for later. Because we're walking through this difficult part, you know, I think this group is really good about theology and arguing and debating different views, but we're in the midst of kind of the measuring standard for God's people. We're in the midst of what are his followers supposed to be like. So we're kind of toning down some of the theological discussions for the next few weeks as we actually examine our hearts and say, do we meet the standard? I mean, it's one thing for us to all know things. It's one thing for us to understand the correct interpretation of things, but all that would be meaningless if none of us actually did it or took time to examine our hearts about doing it. That's kind of where we left off last week. I want to talk about this for a second, sexual addiction. You know, one of the most increasingly difficult things that we face in the church is a large degree of sexual addiction, especially to pornography. Last week, we kind of wrestled with the lust part and just left it hanging for a second. But it led to some conversations afterwards. That's why I'm kind of wrapping it up this way. Because a couple of us hit on this topic. And I want to tell you that this is not a male topic only. In fact, if you look at the statistics on pornography, the fastest growing consumers of pornography, the fastest growing in terms of percentage, are women. That's probably because men are already at 100%. They have no more room to go, you know? <laughs> so, so any increase is probably going to be the fastest increase, right? But women now make up about 30% of the online pornography-consuming audience, and it's growing faster as a percentage. So I mean 70% are men, 30% are women, and it's soon going to be pretty much even if the statistics go forward. Now some of you might be saying, yeah, I might struggle in this area. What do I do? Last week we told you that there's a whole series on our website that talks about sex in the body of Christ. You might want to do this, but Here's a shortcut to it, just to help you out a second. This site right here, triplexchurch.com, which I've recommended in the past. If you actually go to triplexchurch.com 
forward slash get help, there's a separate section, which I'll show you right here. You can actually click on where you kind of are. If you click on this section right here called get help, there are different online courses for men, women, pastors, spouses, teens, where you can go through like an online course on your own, confidentially. They have videos that you can watch and workbooks that you can go through to help get you out of this addiction. Some of you are saying, I'm not addicted. Okay, that's fair. Some of you this might not apply to. Some of you, statistically, half of you, are struggling in this area, in this room, and I don't want to just gloss over it as we walk through this part because it's easy for us to condemn the sin, but that just drives it deeper underground sometimes. I'd rather confront it for a moment and say, this is something that you probably struggle with, so if you want to know a good resource, here's one that's recommended. This is like a 30-day course where you watch these 15 videos. Um, there's also a lot of information on this site. People are finding that one of the most harmful effects of pornography is it becomes addictive by cues. In other words, you're trying to fight pornography in your mind. You say, I'm not, I'm not going to do it again. I'm not going to do it again. And you're going somewhere and you see a cue. It could be a billboard. It could be an ad on TV. It could be something in a movie. And it drives you back into the same behavior. That's one of the first clues that you might be in a cycle of addiction that's starting. So if that sounds like something you're struggling with, if you're struggling with it and you keep going back to it, even though you resolve not to do it, you keep going back, you resolve not to do it, then maybe this is something you should at least just check out and read. I know a couple of you in this room have also downloaded this thing up here called X3 Watch, which is a software you can load onto your computer and it sends reports of which internet sites you're visiting to two or three of your closest friends so they can keep you accountable. And if that's something that you think might help, that's good. Find somebody you trust who can hold it confidential, and they'll get a report once a month says, here's where this person's been. If it looks questionable, they'll send it out. It's tough. This is one thing we do not talk about in the church enough. It's hard to even talk about in here. Uh, like I said, if you go back to our talks on the website, they're pretty frank. They're pretty open. They were pretty daring. But the problem isn't solved, and it never will be until we get serious about it. So that's number one on lust. Let's apply it. Here's the second thing, on anger. There were some conversations that stirred up last week because of our discussion about anger. And what I want to point out tonight, because you're going to see it in the rest of chapter 5 as we finish it off, is some of you asked, what about anger when, when someone is not dealing with it? Or when someone has done something to me and it's hard for me to forgive, it's hard for me to give this thing up. And what I want to point out to you is there is a commandment directly to forgive others and to be forgiven. And sometimes that's very hard for us, but the reason is because there's a sense of entitlement in our hearts. And I want to just point that out because you're going to see a little bit of that entitlement tonight. What is that entitlement that I'm talking about? Somebody may have wronged you, and it's very difficult for you to reconcile. You may never even see that person. It may be tough to reconcile because of the circumstances. But one of the things we have to do when we come to Jesus' teachings is realize that the reason that we're so angry, the reason that we're so hurt, is because we feel entitled to be treated better. It's a funny thing. Why in a world filled with sin, where people sin freely, and we sin freely, and we're messing up this world, do we expect that no one should have the right to hurt us? Where does that come from? I think we have a sense of entitlement that we should live a good life and that everybody should be good to us even as we're not so good to other people sometimes. When you sit in that place of entitlement, you start to 
feel that you deserve things. When God reminds us what we deserve, what we deserve is death. We've all sinned. But through His grace, He's given us this other chance for redemption in this world, partially, and full redemption in the next world. But we somehow still feel that nobody has the right to treat me this way. And I think that even, and and by the way, maybe they don't, but it's that sense of entitlement that sometimes we have to wrestle with our own. So the answer for some of you who are struggling with, I don't know how I will reconcile. I don't even know that I can. I don't know that they're willing. It's like, okay, there's a limit to how much you can do. But at the same time, there's a place where we have to sometimes sit before the Lord and say, Lord, what is it about me that makes me feel so entitled, that makes me feel that I deserve to be treated right when I myself am a sinner who deserves death? What is it about you that allows you to forgive people while you're on the cross, even as you know that they're all sinners and they're all wicked and they don't even deserve what you're giving to them? How do I become more like you. That's a difficult transformational issue in our hearts. So keep this word in mind. You're going to see it again. Let's move forward tonight to three more things to finish off chapter 5. Jesus is going to be talking about oaths, an eye for an eye, and love for enemies. Let's kind of pick it up there. Let's open up just in prayer real fast and go forward. Lord, bless your word as we seek to study who you are. Open our eyes Some of us, Lord, have not seen this text in a while, and may it just come to life in front of our eyes. Tonight, Lord, especially let it touch the deep parts of us so that we can be measured according to your standard and seek to constantly strive to be more and more like you. Pray this in your name. Amen. All right, so if you got your Bible, let's look at Matthew chapter 5. We're at the end of chapter 5. Jesus is now starting to talk about three more of these you've heard it said, but I say to you type passages. The first one is going to be about oaths. And here's what he says. You've heard it said to the people long ago, do not break your oath, but keep the oaths that you have made to the Lord God. I want to show you where some of that comes from. He's citing to Leviticus and to Numbers, these two passages. Leviticus 19.12, do not swear falsely by my name, and so profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. In Numbers, when a man makes a vow to the Lord or takes an oath to obligate himself by a pledge, he must not break his word, but must do everything he said. So Jesus is reminding them, hey, you've heard this. You've heard it said to the people long ago, do not break your oath. Okay, that's the oath. But I tell you, do not swear at all. Do not swear at all. What's he saying? Do not swear at all. Why? What's wrong with the swear? Either by heaven, for it's God's throne, or by earth, for it's his footstool, or by Jerusalem, for it's the city of the great king. And do not swear by your head, for you cannot make even one hair white or black. Is Jesus saying we should never take an oath of any kind? Why is Jesus changing the standard? Yeah. Okay, so he's pointing out that you have no control over these things. All right, that's true, that we don't have control over those things, and he doesn't want us to swear according to those things. That's, I think that's true. Yeah? 
Doesn't he go on to say that our word, our word should be good enough that we shouldn't have to swear by anything, that people should be able to take us on our what do we say? Yeah, the next verse says simply, let your yes be your yes and your no, no. Anything beyond this comes from the evil one. So you bring up the next verse. That's good. Let's throw it out on the table while it's there. I just have a question. Like, first, well, two questions. First, is there a difference between like swearing and oaths? Um, and second, like, what defines something as being an oath as opposed to just saying you'll do something or committing to do something? Or like, is that the same thing? Or? Yeah, historically. Let's look at it historically. In, in the Leviticus text and in the Numbers text, first of all, you're not supposed to take the Lord's name in vain in one way, okay? So he's setting that up as a standard, okay? But let's be clear. This is when he says do not swear. He's not talking about cuss words. He's talking about oaths. So there is a distinction, even in Jesus' words, that there was a custom to basically swear by something. So there was a debate that started to come out, and there's actually extensive text on what you're allowed to swear by. This text came in interpretation of the law where interpretation over interpretation came in and said, well, somehow swearing by heaven is a little bit less, and of course swearing by earth is less than that. So there was like a hierarchy of the oaths you could take. And somehow your duty to somehow hold on to them was either elevated or maybe devalued depending on what you were swearing by. And Jesus is almost saying, I know that this was taught especially in the Pharisees' interpretation of what was written. But if you turn to Numbers chapter 30, there's a whole chapter on what you're allowed, like how you treat vows. If a vow is made by one person, we saw, but if a vow is made by a woman, but her dad disavows it, there's all these rules about vows. And he comes in and says, no, you can't really even swear by those things because as Joe pointed out, they're not even in your control. Yeah. I always wondered, like in court, when they make you put your hand on the Bible and say you swear to tell the whole truth and nothing but the truth. So if you got, isn't that actually unbiblical? Yeah, what, that's a question that's often asked. Anyone want to answer it? Is putting your hand on the Bible in court violative of this command that Jesus gives? Well, let me ask it this way. If you're in court and I put the Bible in front of you, you're going to take the witness stand, I put the Bible right here and say, do you swear to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth? So help you God. Would you say, uh, you know what, I can't take that oath because Matthew 5, to 37 says I can't do that. So I don't care about your oath in court. I'm not allowed to take an oath. They might arrest you. But I mean, the, <laughs> the question is, would you be correctly citing Matthew 5 as a reason not to take the oath? Jeremy. I think that it's, it's two different things. I think that you could take the oath. Um, I don't think it violates this, but... I also think that that oath is really just a symbolic oath because the penalty is a legal penalty. You get convicted of perjury. You don't, I mean, God doesn't come down and smite you for breaking your oath to God that you swore in the Bible. I mean, it really it could be any book. But the, the point is, if you, do tell, if you do tell a lie, you know, if you're not truthful, then there'll be other consequences, and those are legal consequences, not right. Watch how Jesus teaches. You guys have to be very careful because you have to watch what he's doing. Last week, remember when Jesus said you, cannot, you should not call anyone a fool? Or someone who calls someone a fool could be subject to judgment. But we also know that later in the book of Matthew and other places, Jesus called the Pharisees fools. Contradiction? No. What he was really trying to do was point out that anger is the issue. It's the way he taught. He wasn't making an outright prohibition, especially since some of you asked, doesn't it say be angry without sinning? 
Like, absolutely, there's a righteous anger. God has that as one of his characteristics, his wrath against things and his jealousy to protect his children. But it's a righteous anger because you are being angry in a righteous manner without sinning, without letting that sinful anger creep in. This is another example. Why is this another example? Because Jesus says about not taking an oath, but many observers Note, and it's debatable, but they note that when Jesus was on trial at the end of the book of Matthew, the chief priests asked him if he would swear to the following thing being true, and Jesus says, I do. So, in a way, some people point out, well, Jesus himself appeared under oath at trial and actually responded to a question that was posed as an oath and responded to it. So is the point here never to make an oath? Or is the point here like the anger passage more about something else? Maybe the punchline is really what the key is about here. Maybe he's less concerned with oaths as he is with truth-telling. Maybe that's what this is really about. He is elevating the standard. You've heard all these different things about oaths. But I'm telling you that all this stuff you made up about why it's okay to swear by heaven and earth and even your own head because somehow you have more control over yourself. He's saying, you have no control over any of it. It's all silliness. You really shouldn't swear any oaths at all because what I'm trying to tell you is you should let your yes be your yes. My disciples need to be truthful people. Your reputation for truth-telling should far exceed your need to tell an oath or to use an oath. A couple quick examples. In the business context, of course, I deal with oaths every day and people who never tell the truth after they take them. Happens all the time. But in the business context, there's a, there's a phrase that we use all the time that whenever somebody says, I'm, I'm really being honest here, I wouldn't lie to you, that means that they're about to lie to you. Okay? People have to emphasize their honesty. Or somebody who tells you, like, you know what, I've been in business for 20 years, I've never cheated anybody. It's like, if they say that, most of the time it means they have. Or they feel a need to somehow bolster their integrity because they really don't have it. Okay, that's just not in the business context. What about the church? How do you think the church, and specifically the followers of Christ, hold up in their reputation for honesty and integrity? Because that's what Jesus is really saying. Let your yes be your yes. And your no no. That's the kind of reputation we should have. We don't have this reputation. Here's a statistic that was published this week. Churches worldwide give $23 billion in aid to missionary relief across the world. It's pretty good, $23 billion. Churches worldwide, you know how much money is stolen from churches worldwide? $25 billion. $25 billion. Actually, more then we give to aid is actually stolen or embezzled from churches and Christian organizations. How does that stack up for Christ's followers being people of integrity and truth? I could go on and on with examples. Maybe we'll talk about some later tonight. But as an attorney, I've been asked to represent ministers and, and churches who've done really bad things. I've refused. One in particular just boggled the mind. I won't even take up time to tell it to you now. We can talk about it later. A pastor had sold millions of dollars when I was wondering how the heck they had gotten away with it. I was later told, well, his dad used to be the pastor and did the same thing. Well, it runs in the family, apparently, you know. 
Is that really the kind of people we want to be? The answer, of course, is no. But Jesus is setting a standard that's much higher than just telling an oath. He's setting a standard that's much higher than just swearing by heaven, earth, your own head, Jerusalem, which was a common practice of trying to emphasize you were being truthful. He's saying, move that all aside. Even if that's what was taught or interpreted, what I'm telling you is, be truthful. Don't be tempted to bolster your truthfulness by anything other than your reputation to be truthful. Just let that sink in and examine your heart on where we stand on that. Here's another one. An eye for an eye. One of the most difficult ones that we sometimes deal with. Starting in verse 38. You've heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. But I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. If someone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who asks you and do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow from you. Let's start at the top. You've heard it said, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. What's he referring to there? It's from Exodus 21, referring to crime equals just punishment for the crime. So whatever you do, if you steal something, there's a certain punishment. However, if you only hit somebody, there's a punishment according to what you do. An ancient form of what our law system today, you know, it's not the same if you steal a $100 TV as if you kill someone. There are different punishments. Okay, that's a good point. A lot of people find that Jesus, again, seems to be pushing the standard further. What he's saying is the Old Testament standard was one of proportional response. All right? In the ancient world, it was not uncommon to just retaliate. If I injure you, you can't just kill me. There needs to be a measured response, a proportional response. A lot of people would point out this was already kind of an advancement. There's even the introduction of a legal system going on here. If you read in detail the law, it actually is one of the first places where people started to have the idea of monetary compensation for losses. So God is really setting up a whole legal system, for lack of a better word, that we still rely on to this day. Okay. But Jesus is saying, I tell you, do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. A few weeks ago, we heard the commentary from a number of you that went something like this. If someone breaks into my house, there's no way I'm not pulling out my gun and shooting them. Or some reasonable facsimile thereof of that, what I just stated. So here's the question. Do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him, the other also. What does that mean for us as Christians? What standard is he setting, Monique? So it doesn't mean we should just let people take advantage of us or let them harm us or that we can't have self-defense, but it just means basically I think that two wrongs don't make a right. Like if someone really does something to hurt me, whether it be emotionally or physically, does it make you right for me to like, take my vengeance out and do the same thing to that person? So I think we can stick up for ourselves, but at the same time we shouldn't be lashing out and returning hurt for hurt. Tell me about the stick up for ourselves and like how you get it out of this if you're just looking at this. So let's go really far with this and say my grandparents were Jews and um, 
Nazi Austria. So if an evil person comes to the house and they let themselves be arrested or not try to flee the country illegally, which my grandparents did to save their lives, or you know things like that. Or if someone comes at you and is like, same thing, breaking into your house or has a gun to your dad's head, or you're just gonna sit there and kill my family, or you know you can stick up for yourself. There are certain. Well, let's let's take them one at a time. So one of them is you have people coming knocking at the door who want to take you away and kill you, and, and they sneak out the back door and run away. Anyone have a problem with that, sneaking out the back door and running away? Anybody okay with that? Okay, other than just your own gut feeling, can anyone justify that on some ground other than just sounds good to me? I would, my first choice would be run out the back door. Okay, just stay there, though. I just want to know if that was your only choice right now. We'll get to other choices. Hang on, this is going to get rough. <laughs> Fasten your seatbelts, we're going in. If going out the back door is the only choice we're considering for the moment, what ground would you use for that, by the way? Any ground? Yeah. Well, that's turning the right cheek. You're, you're turning away. <laughs> I don't think he meant that cheek. <laughs> I think he meant this cheek, right? Like, if you're running out the back door, that's a different cheek, probably. Let's stick with where we are. People at the door are wanting to take you away and kill you. You're running out the back door. Any biblical justification for that? I mean, I don't know. I might be wrong on this, but I don't know if that's a moral decision. It might be a moral decision if you're being asked to stand firm in your faith. And, I mean, if you, if you think of the martyrs, for example. Okay. So the, the, the thing that Jeremy just raised is if the guy walks into the room and said, I'm going to shoot all the people who claim they're Christians and you run out the back door, that could be a moral issue. But let me just point this one thing out so we can move off of this one because this one's the easy one. We haven't even gotten the hard one. Numerous times in the Gospels, people wanted to kill Jesus. And the Gospels record that Jesus slipped through the crowd, right? All right, so let's get it clear. Nothing in this passage or even in Jesus' actions ever said that he's just going to stand there until, until the time came for that to happen. You have to contrast that several times the crowd wanted to kill Jesus and he slipped through the crowd. But in the very end... He actually faced his accusers and went voluntarily because it was time. Again, Jesus is not always the best example of every single thing we should do because there are some things about him that are unique to his mission and, of course, the fact that he's God. So that may be one of those circumstances. But to raise the moral question you guys just raised, there may be moments when you are called to stand there and face your own death as later all of the disciples would save John, and of course even Paul would. Even Stephen did when he was being stoned, all right? There's nothing in the story of Stephen, if you remember that story, where he defends the gospel, they take him out to be stoned, and what does he do? He doesn't run away. He basically kneels and just prays while he's being stoned. So there's nothing easy about this. People do the same thing, though. That, to me, is totally different than, like, self-defense. Okay, let's, let's talk about self-defense next, okay? You guys took it a little step further. What was the other option you were going to suggest? Okay. First thing, I would run out the back door. But if I couldn't run out the back door, I would, so, like, I would defend myself. Okay. How? What would I do? With the guns. Well, let's see. <laughs> if I had a weapon, I would defend myself. Okay. That's all I want to know. If you had a weapon, you'd defend yourself. Let's go back up to this verse up here. Because this is what I'm trying to struggle with. And this is what everybody struggles with. It's a natural instinct if you have a weapon to defend yourself. But here's what I want to know. Is Jesus saying that you cannot do that? 
Do not resist an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Because I'll just be clear. Christians for a long time have argued that this means that you shouldn't have any right to self-defense, that you should just take it. And others have argued, no, that's baloney. So what do you think? Yeah. I think it's more like, you know, if someone kills your child, then you do not have the right to kill them. You know, but if you want to protect yourself, then I don't think that it says that there's something necessarily wrong with that. Like if someone's trying to kill you, isn't your life sacred enough that you would want to protect it? Okay. Yeah, Stephanie? If I was in the midst of it and someone was attacking my child, I would do anything Everybody would. The question is whether Jesus is saying that's okay or not. I mean, it's very easy for us to have the emotional reaction to go, hey, if someone's going to hurt my child, I'm going to kill him. And everybody will start applauding and we'll feel good about ourselves. That's not the question. That's not the question. That's mindless reaction. That's emotion. I have no doubt what 90% of us would do in that situation, but that's not the question. The question is, is Jesus prohibiting that conduct? Well, first of all, vengeance is the Lord's. So to do it out of vengeance is a different thing. Second of all, I have a hard time believing that we can't protect our own lives when our same God and the Old Testament lots of times like go to this village, kill the women, kill the children, take this place, kill these people. Like clearly taking life isn't like a sinful thing because God can't sin. So there's like there's there's there are different situations and different things. Okay. I'm taking war off the table. War is a totally different argument. The reason war is a different argument, by the way, for people who are wondering about that is because God gave nations the right to declare war and he instructed them to do certain things. This is about, Jesus is clearly in this situation, not talking about armies or war or nations. He's talking about a person. The question's still standing. Is he prohibiting it? Yeah. It, just, it would depend on whether or not what you did was proportionate Right? I mean, if we're talking about eye for eye and tooth for tooth is talking about proportionate crime or, or justice, you know, um, then there, there is kind of the instinctual stance that says, yes, you will you know, defend yourself. But then there's the, the matter of law which says, well, yeah, you did that, but was it still wrong? Was it, was it, still, was it still justifiable? Let me pick up on the law point for a moment before you guys get all unspun, because I think if you understood these words, it might start to answer the question. When Jesus said, do not resist an evil person, the word resist has a very specific meaning. And in this context, the meaning, actually not even in this context, the actual word that he used means do not defend yourself in a legal context, an evil person. Do not bring about the rights that you could litigate against an evil person. And it sounds a little weird when you define it that way until you realize that he's actually in the midst of a passage talking about suing. And then it starts to link up a little better for us. Read it this way. But I tell you, do not defend yourself or bring litigation against an evil person. If someone strikes you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Like, wait a minute. What does getting struck on the cheek have to do with legal proceedings? In this culture, that term, striking somebody on the right cheek, was indicative of an insult that was fined in litigation. In other words, Jesus may not be directly speaking just about physically hitting somebody in the face. You guys ever see those old movies where an old woman takes her gloves out and slaps somebody in the face? And that's supposed to be like the ultimate insult, like, ugh, you know? 
right? And they always have to make that noise that goes with it. You ruffian, uh, you know? That is the same type of insult. Jesus is basically saying if someone insults you by slapping you with their backhand, which is really what it is, and turn the other one as well, and don't worry so much about defending your right not to be insulted. Now, does it also refer to physical? Yes. But look at the context first, because we're going back to that word entitlement again. He's saying in a moment, you're going to see, I want you to be not entitled to all the things you think you're entitled to. I want you to be a person who's selfless. I want you to go beyond what you think. Now, yes, it has connotations and it does reach things about our physical ability to self-defend. But it doesn't start there. And that's why this passage confuses so many of us. So if we're really talking about proportional judgment, then it's kind of like saying, you know, somebody wants to sue you or, or insults your honor. Don't take it to the next level. Don't bankrupt them. Don't, no, don't do in kind, you know, what they did to you. It's maybe especially that you're a Christian. Right. It isn't really about self-defense in a way. And that's why this passage becomes so difficult. Ryan. What about that? The second part says if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let them have your cloak as well. But say like if someone's suing you, you know, for everything that you have because of something that happened, do you still have to defend yourself at that point? Or you just go, okay, no, well, here, I'll give you this and then stop. That's a good question. Let's go into it a little bit because now that you're starting to see about this entitlement concept, it really starts to drive home. If you read that verse by itself, if someone wants to sue you and take your tunic, let them have your cloak as well, it sounds like you're laying down, doesn't it? But so is turning the other cheek. They're consistent. You have the right to recover money for the insult that was done to you. You have right, if he even physically hits you, to get back money for that. He's saying, turn the other cheek and move on. Don't even go there. And then he goes further. Someone wants your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. There's a biblical commandment to never take the cloak in litigation. And this is from the Old Testament. That people are supposed to at least have their cloak so they can be warm. You're not, so you can't take away their warmth. But he is kind of saying that. That's a tough passage to wrestle with. But again, he's reminding us that if someone is suing you for one thing, give it all to them. Why? Why would he say that? It's part of that entitlement mentality again. It's part of that mentality where God's looking at people saying, this, none of this belongs to you anyway, by the way. And we're going to get into all those passages in chapter 6. But the standard I'm setting for you is to go beyond what even the law allowed you to do. When people would sue you, why would they take your tunic? It was taken almost like collateral, by the way. Or if those were the only damages you could afford, that's what they would give you. He's saying it doesn't matter. Give them more than they're asking for. Now, I know what the heart of your question is. Is that what we're supposed to do today in court? We're supposed to just, every time someone sues us, just lay down and give up the case? And, and, and by the way, the reason I think that I have to struggle with that is because later, it's in 1 Corinthians, and I believe it's chapter 6, Paul even instructs that there should be no suits among believers. He's actually using the same type of notion here. Now, I don't assume this is just among believers. I assume maybe that the person who's suing you may not be a believer. That's not always the case, though. <laughs> I mean, you know, if, 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 if believers never sued anybody, let me tell you, the legal system would be empty. You know what I mean? So, so like, there is a lot of believers suing non-believers and believers, but... He's, he's not qualifying who's suing. He's saying, if someone sues you, give them that as well. You're saying, are you just supposed to lay down? And I think he's saying, 
Yeah, give him more than he asks. And the reason I believe that is we're going to get to the next thing about the one mile. Philip. Uh, one of the things I'm thinking, just like especially looking at the last passage that we looked at of how he wanted us to go further, weren't literal. They were just to communicate an idea of I want you to go further with this. And is that possible that that's what this is talking about? That what he's saying, like don't resist an evil person, someone strikes your life, that none of that's literal. That it's all just, I want to communicate a concept to you that, yeah, you shouldn't be legally suing someone just because they legally sue you. Especially like at the end of the, that gives the water ask you and you not turn away. Like is it possible that that's just, none of that's literal so that that's not the issue? I wouldn't say none of it's literal. Well, it's, I guess we're going to quibble over what literal means. Like last week we talked about gouge out your eye. Is that literal? No, I don't think he means gouge out your eye. But I believe he's using it to emphasize a much stronger point, is do whatever it takes to stop sinning. I do believe these are commands. I don't believe they're just examples or a device. He is really saying, go above and beyond. That's the whole central theme of do not take what is proportionally entitled to you. In fact, take even less and go further than anybody would even require you to do. That's what I want of my people. What he's really saying, I think, is do whatever and even more than you think you should to do right. And don't necessarily rest on the fact that somehow this either belongs to you or that you're entitled to more. If you are owed a proportional response or a proportional remedy like the ability to sue, or if you have a rule protecting you, which we'll get to in a minute, don't even rely on that. Go over and above in doing and giving to other people. So that even when you deserve not to be insulted or can go after it, you can actually turn and get insulted a second time and not worry about it. If it was really about your ability to hit somebody back, he's saying even if you have a right of self-defense, don't take it. Not in every context, but to, to emphasize the point. Okay? I'm not gonna, I don't think there's any teaching in here that says if a guy breaks into your house and is about to kill you, you're supposed to stand there and just you know, say, here, just right here. Just, you know. <laughs> not going to do that. Would you say that, that if someone just hits you but have no intention to kill you, that you should just be like, okay, that's fine, and let them continue to hit you? Oh, I don't know about continue to hit. Let's, let's be specific. If I just hit you across the face once, I think his answer would be, that's it. You get up and you go. If I come after you and I keep wailing on you, I think there's a chance you're going to have to put up your arms and maybe even push me back or do something, all right? But if there's some chance that, that all it is is I just got so angry or whatever it was and I just really just squarely hit you, I think you could say I have the right to defend myself at that point and maybe even hit you back. And he's saying, don't, don't even take it. Move on. Be better than that. That's the standard I'm calling you to is be better than that. Can I just go forward real fast to what Morgan hit on so we understand why? Look at this part here. If someone asks you to go one mile, go with them two miles. You know the whole go the extra mile that we use so much in our society? I mean, look, this is the root right here. In Roman law, they could make you go one mile. Who's they? The Roman soldiers could conscript you. Basically, just temporarily take you and go, you, you need to carry our stuff for one mile. Now, the one mile in the Roman thing wasn't actually a full mile. It was like a thousand paces or something. But under Roman law, they could conscript anybody to do that, to help the military force. So there's a rule that says you have to go, but there's also a rule that limits how far you have to go. Jesus is saying if someone forces you to go, and he's using the exact military word forces you to go, meaning if someone conscripts you under Roman law to go one mile, you have every right to go, okay, my mile's over, you've got to find somebody else. He's saying go the extra mile, go two. 
you have an entitlement to stop after one mile. Go, that's it. I can't, I'm not supposed to go further. And he's saying, no. Go with him too. Give to the one who asks you. Do not turn away from the one who wants to borrow money from you. Give to the one who asks you. How many times when somebody comes up to you to ask you for money, whether it's a friend who you feel is a little bit weird that they're asking, or somebody you don't even know that's on the street, you're struggling with like, I don't know, is this right? Is this wrong? I mean, don't you have that same kind of entitlement? This is mine. I don't know that I should be parting with it. Don't you have that same sense of like, I don't know, it's a little inappropriate for you to be asking me. It's a little inappropriate for you to be putting me in this position. He's saying, if someone asks you, do not turn them away. Just give. That seems kind of, again, one of those things. Go beyond what you're entitled to. You could say, hey, that's mine. That belongs to me. I don't want to do that. There's a parallel passage, by the way, in Luke. It makes it even more clear. Luke 6.30, give to everyone who asks you. And if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. How much entitlement do we have in our stuff? I've often told you that if you want to feel weird about your stuff, like the best thing to do is imagine somebody just walking into your house, going to your closet, and just putting on your clothes and walking out. Like that would make us feel creepy and weird, wouldn't it? Ew. Like, that's weird. They just put on my clothes and just walked out the door. It says give to everyone who asks you to where it's almost like saying, like, the needy, you know, to where it's like, hey, if there's someone that's, that, that asks, like, hey, I want it. Yeah. But, but, but that second line talks about somebody stealing. They take what belongs to you, don't even find it, and take it back. Like, it's specifically talking about you. I think a lot of us struggle in that area because we're feeling like I, 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 I deserve, I And as soon as you say that, like Jesus might be looking at the whole crowd just shaking his head going, if you only saw the world the way I did, if you knew who created it, if you knew how depraved you were, if you knew what I could see, all of this I, 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 this I would disappear if you saw what I had actually done, what I gave to you. And you guys are so concerned about your cloaks and your tunics and like the insults that are due to you and whether you should go one mile. And This is what concerns you compared to all the things that you have and that you've been given. Be better than that. Monique. I understand the whole sense of entitlement. I totally agree with that. Like, you know, we're just being lucky, blessed to have what we have. And if someone took it and they needed it that much, all right, whatever. Like, you took it. I, you know, I, that I understand. Helping others so that nothing in this life is really ours and all of that, but I also think it comes down to like common sense. Like, there's all you know, there might be that one person in your family who's kind of crooked who's always trying to borrow money from you, take it, and use it for something, or the drug addict that's trying to take money to buy drugs that you that is always coming to you, or someone who's taking advantage of you. I mean, is that commandment also like I'm a doormat? Like, every time you come to me, I'm commanded to give you money, even though you're totally using me, or you know, whatever it is. Because I think there's a line where. I think that commandment is like that more than it isn't. Let's put it that way. But here's the thing. On that spectrum, most of us are over here on the not giving except when I like the person. I'd rather us be on the 95% part over here where we're giving in almost every situation except for a place where you go, I really think that this person is so addicted to drugs that if I give them one more amount of money that it's going to hurt them more than it's going to help them. Most of the time when I struggle with giving people, I'm not really struggling with them. I'm struggling with whether I want to give it to them. All right, I'm not so concerned about, well, if I give him five bucks, will he really will he drink? Will he use it for something else? I'm concerned with, I don't want to give him five bucks. Or like that one lazy person, maybe 
Sure, but aren't there, aren't there people like us that God still continues to give good things to every day, even though we're like that? Yeah, Ryan. Uh, just, just real fast, um, how does that pertain to like, uh, like a homeless person that you see on the street when they ask for money? Same thing. Do you give it to them? In my mind, I err on the side of unless I really believe that there's going to be some sort of real substantial harm in giving them a buck, I'm going to give it to them. If I can find a place to buy them food, I'd rather do that. Am I telling you that what I do is biblical truth? No, I'm just saying that the way I see that, I think most of the time the struggle is the greed in my heart, not their good or bad. Like somebody's like, well, they might buy a drink. I'm thinking if you're homeless and you're sleeping on the street and all you want is a beer, then God bless you, here's a beer. I mean, you know, what I should be doing is taking you into my house, giving you a bed, like helping you find a job, helping you get off your feet. And if the, the worst sin in the world is that I've helped you buy a beer, then, you know, and I'll be judged for that, but better than me just holding on greedily. Other people would say that's wrong, and I respect other people's opinions on that. But my heart is to hold on to my money. And when I see him saying, if someone asks, give, more than they even ask for, then I'm thinking, yeah, unless I, t- I completely can see that they're completely addicted and it's totally bad. There's a lot of people that I just think, you know what? I'm so much more fortunate, just take it. Jesus used hyperbole because he knew we were so hard-headed. He told us to gouge our eyes out. I mean, he said, gouge your eye out, because he knew he needs a graphic description for us to get it. Yeah. Um, I think one of the main things about this is like, okay, so let's say someone insults you, like it says in the first thing, that you shouldn't have revenge and retaliation in your heart, that you should let them do that and let them be punished in the afterlife if that is what's... So it's not... I think it's saying that justice isn't necessarily up to you. It isn't. It's true. The, The passage I think Monique cited, which is, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. Yeah. Look, in Jesus' time, people said, why cure this guy? It's his own sin that caused this. Like, why? Leave him alone, right? It would be the same argument in our thing. Like, leave this homeless person alone. It's their fault. They're in the street. They're the drug, all these things. Jesus went forward and cured the person just out of love. The real point is Jesus is looking at his followers' hearts. People will be evil. People will steal. People will take things. People will hurt you. People will try to insult you. Jesus said worse. People are going to kill you on my account. I want my people to have a different heart. Go beyond. Don't feel entitled. Now let me close off the discussion on self-defense real fast because we're going to have to have it afterwards. But I know some of you who are big fans of Charlton Heston and Rush Limbaugh and all those... (laughs) non-Christian biblical scholars. Self-defense, Jeremy's right. You'd have to justify it on other grounds, somewhere else. It's not, I'm not saying that it isn't there, but you, you can't really just use this passage one way or another. For those of you who are struggling with war, an Old Testament war, that's a whole different concept about nations and what God uses through leaders and nations to do. That's a whole different concept. It's not about personal issues. Okay? I'm prepared to talk about that, just not here because we're going way over. So afterwards, if you guys want to go out and talk, we can debate about why Jesus told him to get a sword and why Jesus told Peter not to use the sword and all those different passages that even Jesus spoke about. All right, we can talk about because I'm prepared. I'm ready to take you on, but later. Let's go to the last one. This is the end of chapter 5. We're going to be there. You have heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I want to point out that this is the one instance where Jesus is not directly summarizing 
So in other words, the hate your enemy doesn't actually come from the Old Testament. So it's not like Jesus said, in the Old Testament, you're supposed to love your neighbor and hate your enemy. What he was saying was, this is the way you've been taught. Love your neighbor is definitely in the Old Testament, but the interpretation had developed to say, hate your enemy. That you're not supposed to love your enemy. Hate may be too strong of a word the way we translate it. It really is supposed to be translated, love your neighbor and do not love your enemy. You don't need to positively make effort to love your enemy. Jesus is saying, love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you, that you may be sons of your Father in heaven. Again, give up that right that you think you have. Pray for the people who persecute you. Yeah, you're going to be killed, remember, later on for this? Pray for those people. He causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. What a great God we have that he does that. God doesn't just give good things to the people that love him. He gives good things to everyone, righteous or unrighteous, who love him or who don't love him. And there's great evidence of that in the world because there are a lot of people in this world who do not love God, but they still have so many blessings from their God. What a great father who continues to give to even people who don't know him and worse sometimes who hate him. He doesn't withdraw his hand. And then he asks these rhetorical questions. If you love those who love you, what reward will you get? Are not even the tax collectors doing that? And if you greet only your brothers, what are you doing more than others? Do not even pagans do that? I mean, look at that question. What are you doing more than others? Isn't that what the whole theme of this section has been about? How are you going beyond? How is your heart transformed? How are you more like me, who reigns on both the righteous and the unrighteous? If you only love the people who love you, then you're not like me. Remember the Sermon on the Mount, we said, was primarily spoken to the people who are his disciples. It includes the people in this room. People who want to be more like him. And he closes chapter 5. Yes, we're at the end. We closes chapter 5 with this. Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. A lot of people, when they look at the Sermon on the Mount, are really kind of struggling, especially when you get to this part, the love your enemies. We've heard it because we've been around the church for a long time. But you talk to a first century crowd when you say love your enemies, and a lot of them are like, what? Remember, there's a lot of people who are looking at Jesus right now and wondering if he's the one who's coming to be the big like, leader of the rebellion against the Roman occupation. Are you who you say you are? And then all of a sudden he says, love your enemies. Like, wait a minute. Wait a minute. You're supposed to overthrow our enemies, aren't you? You're supposed to vanquish our enemies. You're sp- What's going on here? Love your enemies? We're so used to it. We go, yeah, love your enemies. But do any of us do it, by the way? You know how hard it is when someone is really persecuting you? Somebody is really doing something to you? Last year, somebody was suing me for $3 million in a case that I was in. You know how hard it was to stand there and pray for those people? To pray for the other lawyer who was suing me? To pray for the people who were behind it when they were like potentially wrecking everything we have? I know a lot of you guys have had that same situation. Do we do that? We're called to absolutely called to do that. If we don't do it, then we're no different. I want you to go beyond is the whole theme here. Go that extra mile. Be perfect. 
The other thing about the Sermon on the Mount is a lot of people look at it and think Jesus setting a standard is so high that most of us should go, forget it. I'll just take the grace. Thanks very much. I'm not doing any of this. He's not saying that either. It is true that he's showing us how high God's standard really is. You think you can do it on your own? Here, follow just a few of these, see if you can do it. You think you're good enough? A lot of people in this world are like, I'm good. Really? This is the standard for goodness according to God. You're good? Do some of these. And as soon as you fail, don't tell me you're good. Yeah, there's that message in the Sermon on the Mount. It's tough. And it gets even tougher in chapter 6 and going into chapter 7. He's putting the standard way high for those people who think they're good. But he's also saying, be perfect. The word perfect that he uses is basically another way of saying, be complete. Be fulfilled. Be whole. Be this way. So maybe you're thinking, there's no way he could ever be perfect. I'm already a sinner. He's not saying be sinless. That's not the same flavor in this word. But be more like me. That is attainable. To be more and more like Christ every single day. That's what this whole beginning chapter 5 has been about. Standard is here. You think you can meet it? Let's see. You think you could follow the Old Testament standard? That was probably somewhat doable, even though you guys had to interpret it to death just to make it livable. And even then, you couldn't do it. But if you want to know the real standard, what I really call you to, what your heart really should be, it's here. Jesus, who was entitled to everything possible, being God himself, gave up all of that so that he could die in our place. What entitlement do we have to anything? Let's pray. Lord, we can encounter your words over and over and still struggle with the wisdom and the depth that you're asking us to go. So maybe that's the reason we just thank you tonight most of all that you gave us your way of salvation, that you supplied the grace and the mercy because you knew that these standards were not attainable by sinful people. But Lord, don't let us make the mistake of thinking that we could somehow just shuffle these off. Don't let us ever get to the place where we take these things lightly. You call us to a much higher standard, but you know as our creator that we can live up to those standards if we just get beyond our own selfish desires and our own selfish entitlement. If we become more and more like you, the humble Lord who came and took our place, even to the point of death when you deserved none of it. Help us to keep in mind that being more and more like you is taking off more and more of the sinful entitlement that we have in our lives. Pray this in your name. Amen.